Welcome everyone to the happy hour. I am your co-host, Jonah Paquette. And I'm Sapria Gell. And we are thrilled to have you join us today. As always, we are going to share uh, tips and tricks from happiness experts from all around the world, all different fields here in the happy hour, uh, devoted each and every episode to bringing you science-backed and research-backed skills for a happier and healthier life. Today, we are uh, really excited to be joined by a, by a wonderful guest, Dr. Chris Willard, who Supriya is going to tell you a little bit about right now. Yeah, we were really, really excited to talk with him, and and he was a great time. So Dr. Christopher Willard, PsyD, is a clinical psychologist, author, and consultant based in Massachusetts. He has spoken in over 30 countries and has presented at two TEDx events. He is the author of 20 books, including Alpha Breaths, Growing Up Mindful, and How We Grow Through What We Go Through. His thoughts on mental health have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Mindful.org, CNN.com, and elsewhere. He teaches at Harvard Medical School. I don't know about you, but I think just reading 20 books or even having just 20 books on your bookshelf seems exhausting, let alone uh, <laughs> writing 20 books. So I was very impressed with that uh, alone. And of course, Chris, as, as listeners you'll hear, has traveled all over the world to share his expertise with a really, really wide range of audiences. Uh, and yet incredibly down-to-earth, humble, kind person, as you'll see. And we got into some really interesting ground with uh, with Chris in this episode, didn't we, Supriya? We did. And, and one of the things we also learned about are some upcoming books that he's working on to, to grow that list of With 20. some fun titles, <laughs> as you'll hear. Yeah, it's pretty great. I, I really appreciated just hearing how he thinks and how he uses his knowledge to really break down these concepts that can be hard to understand or hard to practice into ways that we can put them into practice pretty easily. Yeah. And especially for those of you listeners who have kids, I was going to say who are kids, but I don't know how many eight, nine, <laughs> 10 year olds are listening to the happy hour super, yeah. you never know, but um, you know, how to take these, uh, these concepts around mindfulness and present moment awareness, but really to put them into pretty digestible practical terms uh, for kids, I thought was really impressive as well. Because uh, it's a topic that that can, of course, seem a little bit out there, but he makes it seem quite simple, quite grounded, quite down to earth, and gets into some really practical and tangible ways that we can incorporate this into our lives, which is great. So you're in for a treat, obviously, with uh, Dr. Chris Willard coming up right next here on the Happy Hour, and thrilled to have you here as always. Thanks so much. Thank you. Welcome everyone to the happy hour. Our guest this week is Dr. Chris Willard. We are thrilled to have uh, Chris with us today. Now, of course, with me as always, Dr. Supriya Gill, my co-host, my wonderful, incomparable co-host for the happy hour. <laughs> and uh, as we mentioned, though, we are, we are pumped to have you. So Chris, welcome to the show. It is so great to be here, Jonah and Supriya. It's wonderful to meet you. Jonah and I have kind of known each other on online and in person, briefly at conferences and hanging out, being conference buddies for a few years. So this is really fun to reconnect. Absolutely. Um, and to connect, connect, Supriya. Yeah. I think conference buddies is a good way to put it. I like that term because that, that's kind of how it's <laughs> how it's felt. We had some mutuals. We sort of got to know each other, even shared a couple of meals at a couple of points. And then, uh, you know, I think last time around, we were- exactly. I'm so insecure. I'm like, oh, I gotta, gotta grab onto somebody Wait, for this 48 hours. You know, weren't you guys to supposed to be sitting next to each other at the book signing at the last conference as well? Chris, Chris bailed on me for that. Probably. That's right. Yeah, I was, I, I was supposed to meet you. I think then, I Chris. forgot about my. <laughs> oh my god, so funny. I was okay. sitting there on my, on my lonesome. But I, Chris, if I recall, we, we were kind of those troublemakers towards the back, you know, hanging out, talking. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. yeah shooting, shooting spitballs at people at the conference. So. <laughs> It is, uh, it is great to have you on the show, though, my brother. Anyways, we have a lot of things that we want to cover in a short time today, so we're going to dive in shortly. But of course, for listeners, you know, you, you already heard Chris's full bio, but Chris is one of the most prolific, I would say, psychologists, writers, speakers that I know. You've written 20 books, and we're going to get uh, to talk about some of those. I did not stutter. 20 is correct. And you speak all over the world, which we're going to talk about as well on themes like mindfulness and self-compassion and utilizing mindfulness-based approaches with kids. So lots of exciting ground that we're going to cover. But I'll also say, Chris, I will out you as, as somebody who's not only one of the most uh, incredible sort of prolific writers and speakers and people that I know, 
you are also one of the kindest, most generous, kind of down-to-earth people. So you somehow managed to, I'll just say, uh, I'm, I'm rambling here, but you, you somehow managed to be both super accomplished and super down-to-earth, good guy, Normie, which I think is just so inspiring to see. So thank you for, for all of that. <laughs> That's the best compliment from Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that way, but I appreciate that. The Normie piece is the most important part, though. <laughs> That's like a a huge compliment for me. Um, Totally. Now, Chris, before we dive into your work, um, just for a little context, Supriya, listeners will know this, but Supriya always grants me. I I love to ask wacky questions. And if it was up to me, I'd ask you like 50 questions just about, you know, all kinds of random stuff. She she gives me one. I'm allowed to have one random rando question to start the (laughs) podcast off. So I think actually for you, you you and I share this uh, travel itch where we have this insatiable desire to to see the world. So what I would love to know is like maybe a quick two-parter, if I may. One, what is like maybe the place that jumps out to you that you have gone to either personally or professionally around the world that, you know, is one of your favorite places that you've ever visited? And then secondly, what is a place that you've not yet gone that if you could go anywhere in the world, you would? Oh, these are good. Um, yeah, and I know we try to hook each other up Absolutely. with some good travel, um, travel stuff. Um, you know, last fall I got to go to. Uh, I, had a, I had a lot of time in the Middle East, which I've never really been to, in the Gulf, and spent four days working at a school in Egypt, and, and it just, I mean, just so different and yet so similar. Kind of working with the staff there and the students there, and. Um, it, it was, it, I was just like, I cannot believe this is my life. <laughs> like, this is just really extraordinary. And then finding ways to share about mindfulness and self-regulation strategies kind of across cultures and getting a sense of, you know, what's happening in the culture there um, also. And uh, just, you know, and seeing what's, what already makes sense there. And so that that was just really fascinating and had been been totally on my bucket list. And then like I got it was it was like three weeks out, they invited me and I was like, is this really happening? Like what? And I was like, next thing I know, I'm on a plane to to uh Cairo and a five hour drive mm-hmm. to Alexandria. And um it was it was just really special and um and really eye-opening on a number of of levels. Just I mean, we talk about how travel, you know, blows up our, our stereotypes, and it really does. And I think I can go in with this, like, I have so much to teach these people. And it's like, oh, wow, I learned a lot, like, and really could do something about my own arrogance and cultural arrogance here. Um, and that was that was certainly an experience in some other parts of the world, having having that, too. Um, I think as, you know, like a white dude traveling around, you know, I think it can be can be easy to, you know, adopt sort of a wrong mindset. But I think trying to be more open has just been been amazing to, to learn. Fantastic. Um, and I awesome. had a chance yeah. not long after you to go to Egypt myself, but they didn't pay me to go. So I, I was doing it wrong. <laughs> they didn't fly me out. So. <laughs> Sounded like a wonderful trip nonetheless. <laughs> next, next time I'll have to do that. But yeah, talk about an otherworldly place, um, just completely counter. And then, you know, yeah. last question before we dive in, I could give you a ticket anywhere in the world that you haven't gone. Where, where do you want to go? I'm still itching. I, I still get that Kiwi itch. I really want to get to New Zealand at some point. So that's they got some companies down there. That's a hard one with the family too. So <laughs> that is a long flight. How many places have you traveled to now? How many countries? Let me narrow that. So I have lost track of just countries. Period. It's like 64 or something. And then for work, it's been I think it's 31 for work wow. where I've gone and given talks. Which is again for me just like how is this my life? You know, that means I, like, cause I always love traveling and then it was like, Oh, maybe I get paid to travel. And it's like, this is absolutely bananas that I actually do get paid mm-hmm. to travel. Not always like amazing, you know, <laughs> not American dollar you know, style, but it's like, but it's just so, it, it's just so spectacular that I get to do that. And, uh, you know, and again, and teach and learn and just meet interesting people who are excited about interesting things and new ways of mm-hmm. understanding the human psyche or spirituality or, or whatever, and just kind of cross-pollinating different ideas. So I just, I'm like, this is, yeah, I feel really, really fortunate in that way. And honestly, if they're just getting you out there, Chris, as I always remind myself when I get to go places for traveling, all the research says better to have money towards experiences as opposed to things. So if you're just getting out and and being flown out, experiencing a new place, going, you know, obviously if they want to throw a couple of zeros your way, no no one's going to complain. (laughs) But otherwise, just 
you know, paying your way, experiencing new new parts of the world in this way is uh, how do you beat it? Yeah, Absolutely. new perspectives. Totally, totally. It's, it's one of my favorite pieces of positive psych literature, which I know the two of you are are kind of all about. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and so on that note, we Jonah mentioned, and you know, all of the work you do around mindfulness and, and some other things, but we're going to start with mindfulness. And can you just tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about, Chris, about how you got into this and, and what mindfulness means to you? I can. I mean, my story is kind of like, you know, I, I often sort of start my talks with like, you know, I never heard the word mindfulness when I was a kid, but I, you know, had these experiences like, you know, walking quietly in the woods at, at camp, or they'd say like, let's notice all the sounds around us. And, you know, maybe the camp counselors were trying to get us kids to shut up. And now that I have kids, they probably were. <laughs> like, it was actually these really powerful experiences. And then I, you know, when I was in college, I had a lot of personal struggles with, with stress and substance abuse and, um, uh, you know, kind of depression, anxiety, stuff like that, and took uh, time off to, you know, find myself or get my shit together, depending on how you want to put that. And and basically, my parents ended up dragging me on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. This was 1999 or so. And, um, and it was really transformative for me. I was I was happier. I've been I've been sober since then. I got interested in psychotherapy. I got interested in spirituality. I got interested in positive psychology. You know, took some some more time off just to explore more deeply. Going on mindfulness oriented retreats, reading a lot, and uh, finished school. Was a therapist for a few. Excuse me. Was a teacher for a few years, and then a therapist. Where I then. Um, you know, spent a lot of time actually traveling, you know, sort of spiritual seeking and kind of, if I go this place, what will I learn in that place and go on a retreat here and go on a retreat there. And that got me the travel bug and also just that kind of seeking journey bug. And then it was amazing because I was in, in grad school in kind of the 2000s when mindfulness was, you know, the research was starting to come out, um, the, the brain research and neuroplasticity was starting to come out, all this exciting stuff. And I kind of, and I was happened to be working with kids. I was like, I want to try mindfulness with kids. Could this work? And and just, I feel like I got really lucky with sort of riding the wave of like people were really interested in this stuff at the time. And um, and that's kind of how it got going um, for me. So I feel again like I sort of stumbled into this really at a lucky time where it was so transformative for me. And then finding ways to share that with others and bring it into my professional work, um, just like wow, this is this is amazing. Um, gratitude, you know, positive psychology. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's sort of how it got started. Yeah, love it. And Chris, if you could, if for listeners that obviously people come in with a whole whole range of exposure to this stuff, how would you even sort of put mindfulness into simple terms for for listeners who aren't that exposed to it? Uh, you know, it strikes me as one of those fascinating topics that you can write entire volumes of books on it. And yet it could also be whittled down to, to, to some, you know, a few words. So how would you operationalize or define that concept for, for listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, I think of it, you know, in the clinical sense, sort of like the, the definition we sort of use is like paying attention to the here and now with acceptance and non-judgment. And that's really hard to do. Even paying attention is hard for us to do. Um, having acceptance and non-judgment is hard being in the here and now. But I do think that's a useful clinical definition that can help us all agree on what that means and study it. And yet I also think when I talk in a more informal way, I I think it's in some ways like knowing what we're doing as we're doing it. Like, do I know right now that I'm speaking with you two and hearing my voice and, you know, feeling the vibrations and, you know, watching you you know, nod along or fall asleep or whatever it is that you're doing. You know, in the moment with it and with some intentionality there. And it can be a formal practice like meditation, or it can just be bringing that same kind of awareness to walking, eating, speaking, breathing, right? All of these things we do on a daily basis. So that's still not a pithy definition. And I know that that was great. And by the way, listeners, uh, if you're only listening, know that neither Supriya nor myself were falling asleep, of course, with any Chris was saying. keep having to define it. It's a very hard thing to define. But, so. I, but, I, but I love what you talked about in terms of both the sort of the formal and the informal, um, yeah. because I think that's something that trips people up is often, and you know, we'll get into lots of interesting things to come, but you know, I think people hear that word and they think, okay, I have to sit a certain way on a certain type of cushion mm-hmm. with a certain type of chimes going on in the background for a certain period of time, <laughs> right. uh, as opposed to... To like maybe there's ways to engage all of those autopilot activities in life 
in a little yeah. bit more of a present focused way. And I'm always struck by, I think, was it was it Dan Gilbert's work at Harvard that talked about like average person's yeah. mind is wandering roughly half of our waking hours, like 47% of the time our mind is outside the here and now. And that is a huge amount of life. Let's repeat that for our listeners who missed what you said. Um. <laughs> because their mind was half of the listeners were not paying attention there. But yeah, I think roughly, they were asleep. Yeah, half of our waking hours. I'm always struck by that. Of just we, you know, can we decrease that to 45%, 40%? I mean, we're always going to have mind wandering, it strikes me. But like, and some of that's actually very good. Maybe we'll get into that to have sort of, you know, we, yeah. we were t- present 24 7. That wouldn't be great. <laughs> but uh, can we spend a little bit more time in the here and now? I think that's kind of the promise of what you're describing there. Yeah, when it's helpful to be in the moment, to be in the moment, when it's helpful to let our minds wander toward creativity, toward planning, toward remembering and reminiscing, to be able to do that. It's having a little bit more, I hesitate to say control, but a little bit more maybe influence over what our minds do and where they go. And I think that, that as you two know, what brings us more happiness. Mm-hmm. And and along those lines, Chris, along with more happiness, what are the other benefits of being more intentional and being in the here and now? I mean, to, I mean, I think what we see is we can see it at different levels. We can see it at the I kind of I've talked sort of like the biopsychosocial, right? We see these physical changes in the body whenever we reduce stress, right? Immune system functioning goes up, digestive system, you know, blah blah blah. You know, health gets better basically fundamentally. Um, we see psychological shifts, you know, in terms of like more positive outlook, you know, better mood, things like that, all kinds of psych benefits toward depression, anxiety, even helping with trauma, things like that. We see brain changes, um, the work of Sarah Lazar and other people seeing reduced amygdala activity. And I don't want to get too insider baseball, but that's like the big emotional alarm system part of the brain quiets down. And then the more uh, planful parts of the brain, self-regulation parts of the brain, and actually perspective-taking parts of the brain mm-hmm. activate, maybe even grow new gray matter. Um, and so these are some of the, the real positive benefits that, that we start to see, as well as taking more perspective, being kinder, more compassionate um, in our relationships with others. So on all those levels, what we really see are, are benefits at the, at the body, at the brain, at our uh, interpersonal. And of course, that's not even saying anything about the spiritual level where a lot mm-hmm. of these practices um, have originated and can still be a big part of um, if you're a, a spiritual person too. So glad you mentioned that because that comes up often even in practice is, you know, sometimes we don't ask those questions about how you're connecting spiritually or what this means to you in a different cultural context. So right. thank you. Do you mean that. psychology as a field has a big blind spot around religion and spiritual? I don't believe what you're saying. <laughs> What's a blind spot? We're <laughs> perfect. hundred percent. And so Chris, I'm curious because, you know, it's so much of your work is with children and I actually have a four-year-old. So I'm curious about your thoughts about, uh, and a one-year-old, but I think she's too young. Uh, <laughs> when do you think starting to teach mindfulness is appropriate and how, how would a parent go about that or a teacher? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're not teaching your, your one-year-old, you're clearly, you know, <laughs> way behind them. Um, I mean, like my, you know, my daughter just turned five and it's like, you know, to me, it's little things like, can we do some fun, you know, hot chocolate breathing, you know, breathing like you're smelling blowout, like you're cooling it off, you know, kind of, then we're teaching some breath regulation. Can we do, you know, can we give kids little, little prompts and make things playful? I think a lot about Lev Vygotsky did this study where he was trying to get um, eight-year-olds to stand still. Now I have an eight-year-old, so I I know how this is going to (laughs) end. But he says, stand still as long as you can. You know, of course, five minutes later, they're running around everywhere. So he calls them back in. He says, stand still as long as you can. And now imagine that you're like a knight guarding a castle. And actually, the kids now stand still for like 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. This is why, like when our camp counselor said, we want you to go in the woods and and walk like an Indian. I think, you know, we, we, we wouldn't and shouldn't say that anymore, but maybe like walk like a ninja or, you know, something like that. That's walk as silently as possible. We're doing mindful walking because you're not thinking about the past or the future. You're just thinking about each footstep, the texture of the forest floor, right? Or imagine you're listening like a, like a deer to all the sounds around you, like a deer that has really good hearing. That little bit of playfulness can really start to help our kids to tune in in a different way because play is really their language. My daughter, 
actually I was crying two hours ago. It was her, her graduation from preschool um, earlier oh, today. Congratulations. <laughs> it was a lot of work on my part. Um, <laughs> Late nights, I'm sure. <laughs> but we were talking about the 100 languages of children or something in the graduation speech. I didn't quite catch it, honestly. But, but thinking about play as being really their language of how they learn, how they communicate. And so it's about making it playful. You know, can you breathe like you're smelling the hot chocolate and cooling it off? Can you walk like you're a ninja or someone walking quietly in the forest? Can you listen with the ears of a deer? All of these things are, are they're sort of like the training wheels, I think, developmentally. that then can come off and you can just do a sound listening meditation when you're older or you don't have to imagine you're holding a mug of hot chocolate to breathe in and blow out cooling off. You can learn how to regulate your breath, and then you can learn how to watch your breath, right? But these images and the play is the training wheels, in a sense. And I think that's how we can we can get started. Yeah. I'm struck, Chris, by, you know, you, you have such a creative side to you in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people in mental health and who write uh, aren't particularly creative in that way. And I think, you know, I'm always struck by, you know, I remember you're doing the pyramid breath when you were in Egypt and sort of different, you know, ways that you bring this to life, uh, which kind of makes me think of like one of your most amazing books that's that that's out there for a lot of people with kids is Alpha Breaths, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can maybe speak a little bit to that and just kind of what inspired you to write that book and you know how 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 that came about. Oh my gosh, that that was really fun. It was with my friend Dan Retschoffen, who's a wonderful therapist and, and mindfulness educator. Um, and uh, it, so I was like reading to my my son must have been two or three. We were reading a. I can't remember what, what it was, an Eric Carl book, um, sort of about like, you know, moving your body and, you know, bang your chest like a gorilla and stretching your neck like a giraffe and sort of watching him do these movements. And then, you know, sort of getting also sort of into like alphabet books at that age. And, um, and my friend Daniel, who had these really fun sort of breaths that I'd done a workshop with him once. And it was sort of like, there's the ballerina breath and there's the, the hot chocolate breath or the, you know, the butterfly breath, breathe in and flap your wings and breathe out and flap them back out or alligator breath, you know, like you're opening and closing your jaws like an alligator. And, um, and so I reached out to him and I was like, how about like, you know, we write this book together. That's like, it's an alphabet book, but we're teaching breathing and we have to come up with 26, just like ridiculous breathing practices. And so we got on the phone and kind of like wrote this book in like 25 minutes of like, you know, B is butterfly breath and C is chocolate breath and D is like dolphin breath and S is superhero breath, which is, you know, one that he came up with. And, um, or it was actually a five-year-old I think that he was working with came up with, you know, and of course every kid's book has to end with everyone falling asleep at the end. These are very important for parents. <laughs> um, why is it a mindful yawn and C is like a mindful <laughs> a nice long, you know, so we had a, a blast writing that and then we, we got emails from around the world that were really like enough that we then you know ended up writing a sequel last year and, and my kid wrote a few and so it's, it's just been wow. so much fun that book is a, a total blast to write and it's in pictures and stuff i have to say when I think about how I spend 25 minutes, it's usually like watching a rerun of a show. You're writing an entire book in 25 minutes. I'm, 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 I'm blown away, Chris. Well, yes, and those endings are very much appreciated. So. <laughs> yes, like I had a four-year-old at the time I was that, so. Very insightful. But, I mean, I think this is so cool. And, and what you're speaking to already is, is how do you make this stick? And, and right. you've described, right. you know, play for the younger kids. And, yeah. and what would you recommend if kids are a bit older? How would you make mindfulness stick for them? Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, I think, you know, eyes will roll as we get into teenage years. Um, but I think it's meeting them where they are with, you know, I mean, my son's eight, so he still kind of goes for it sometimes. But, you know, it's like he's super into soccer. So knowing that like Leo Messi got really into mindfulness, I guess, because he was so bored in the pandemic, he got interested in mindfulness. <laughs> right? But that's like maybe something of an in or... For the uh, American listeners, Leo Messi is a soccer <laughs> player, Chris, just to be, to be clear. I actually, need, I, actually, I actually needed that. I was like, okay, I need to look this down. <laughs> Leo up. <laughs> He's only player. one of the greatest players of all time. Uh, I'm very well informed, okay? <laughs> also, we have Simone Biles, you know, Olympic athlete. We've got, yep. you know, all kinds of 
pop singers and, and hip hop artists interested in mindfulness. And uh, LeBron, you know, I know you're a basketball guy, Jonah. So these are I know, know who he is in sometimes and um, and things like what do they love? You know, I often say to teens like, you know, like like listen to your favorite song, you know, as a coping skill. But they'll come in and be like, oh, it didn't work. I still felt bad. I was like, well, okay, listen to your favorite song. And listen to it mindfully. Like try listening to just one instrument mm-hmm. for that whole four or five minutes of the song. And they'll come back and they'll say, you know, Dr. Willard, my Spotify says I've listened to this song, you know, Taylor Swift or whatever, you know, 750 times. And I listened to just the drum beat and I noticed all these different things about the song I hadn't noticed before. And what that to me is also, which is a really key part of mindfulness that I think you're interested in, in particular, Jonah, is awe. Mm -hmm. Like part of what mindfulness does is it creates this sense of wonder. Like me, when I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction class and I ate the raisin, you know, and took 45 minutes to eat a raisin. It blew my freaking mind, like all that was happening in that eating of a raisin. And it created a sense of awe, which maybe that's the operative aspect of mindfulness, right? Or we listen to music in this way and suddenly notice something new about the song that we never noticed before. Or we listen to music and notice how angry music makes our body feels or sad music makes our body feels. And we're teaching emotional intelligence at the same time. And, you know, like this is, you know, anger feels like my heart pounding and sadness feels like a lump in my throat. And these are ways of inducing a little bit of an emotion that then we can work with in some ways and be more mindful of our bodies and more mindful of our emotions. So, you know, those are ways to get some maybe buy-in from those, you know, definitely more skeptical teens. Um, I think with teens too, like teens in my office really love mindfulness as a therapist. A lot of parents struggle to teach their kids mindfulness, but it's like, don't, if you're a parent, like don't, don't try to teach it to your teenager. Like, like have the soccer coach do it, have a therapist do it, right? Someone else might be better developmentally at that age than you to try to teach this stuff. That's a great point. Yeah. And I just think that's important to remember. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I love what you said about that link with awe and mindfulness, Chris, because I, I, I tend to think of them as somewhat sort of cousin states, so to speak, yeah. that they feed into each other. They're very related. And, and it strikes me that, you know, part of the magic of awe, as I always t- tell people too, is not, you know, to go off necessarily to the Grand Canyon or to go to you know, Machu Picchu. If you can do those things, amazing. But like in reality, most of us can't just snap our fingers and, and do that. Yeah. But there's actually so much magic that surrounds us each and every day that we miss. Yeah. We have these blinders on, we lose sight of that. And the fact that we can, you know, notice the wonder that, you know, is actually in front of us each and every moment, oftentimes through that sense of awareness, through that, you know, getting in touch with the beauty that's around. It's sort of Einstein's quote sums it up so well of there's two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle and the other is as though everything is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And to really get in touch with those miracles that surround us every day seems to be, you know, part of the magic of awe, but also, you know, through that cultivation of of present moment awareness that we can get there. So love that. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Kind of, you know, I always, I always enjoy our, our, our conversations more casually off air too, because I think there is so much, you know, even this, this question people say is mindfulness part of positive psychology or vice versa. And is this is gratitude mindfulness. Is this, it's like, it's just always sort of a fun question. Yeah. Where does all fit in? Where do these <laughs> other, you know, compassion, self-compassion, yeah. appreciation, how do these fit in um, with each other? You know, like, you know, it's, it's interesting, interesting question. And even though we talk about them individually, there's, you know, you can't help but it's like, you know, you build one muscle and it inevitably is going to start building some of those other mental muscles as well. They're all just fun cousins. That's all that's (laughs) happening. (laughs) Happy family, exactly. That's right. Can't can't have one without the other. (laughs) Chris, you you were mentioning teens and and some of the challenges that that can come up there, but also some of the opportunities as a clinician. you know, I'm struck that this is a particularly challenging time to be a teen um, yeah. in this current moment. Just if you look at rates of depression and loneliness and isolation and bullying and the impact of social media use, and I'm I'm just wondering for for either the rare listener who might be a teen, of which I don't think there's going to be many, but perhaps more likely, you know, parents <laughs> of teens or someone who has a teen <laughs> who they love, 
um, and who sees some of these struggles, how do you feel like mindfulness may be of particular importance at this current moment we find ourselves when it comes to teens and mental health and stress and all the rest? I mean, yeah, and just record rates of mental health issues. And, and it's not just in the U.S. I mean, I think, when, for example, when I was in Egypt, what really struck me was it was those kids actually talking about very explicitly talking about mental health issues, kids talking about kids in middle school in Egypt talking about panic attacks. And, and that's part of what I mean was sort of walking with a lot of cultural stereotypes, mm. a lack of openness. And I, I think some of that comes, I think one of the biggest challenges that we see is social media. And, and again, a lot of us feel this, but what was interesting being in Egypt was realizing that the kids there, social media had done wonders to break stigma around mental health. And yet it had also done unfortunate wonders to uh, spread a lot of misinformation about mental health and how to treat it as well. So we have this, this big, you know, kind of, you know, it can really cut both ways. So how do we help our kids, you know, sort of use social media, for example, in a way that's helpful and not harmful um, to lead to actual connection rather than feelings of isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an opportunity. It's, it's a lost opportunity or it's maybe not yet lost, but maybe we can recover and regain that. I think also w- w- what's become more and more clear, not just in the U.S., but as I talk to people in other places, is we're actually not going to therapist our way out of this problem. I don't, I don't even know how many millions of therapists we would need to treat not just the teenagers who are struggling with mental health, but the younger mm-hmm. kids and the adults. We have an adult mental health crisis and addiction crisis, um, particularly in the U.S., um, but, but mental health around the world. And we need broader-based interventions that are about building resilience and whether that's curricula in schools that integrate things like positive psychology, as the two of you do, or whether it's teaching mindfulness and self-regulation skills, starting in preschool, moving up through the grades so that it's almost a public health intervention, um, a preventive intervention, rather than oh my gosh, we've got this problem, here's the solution. Mm. Um, And to me, I also really feel strongly that that's actually a better way to teach mindfulness and positive psychology is not as, you know, oh, you're you're, you're having this problem, here's the solution, because they're much deeper, actually, than just here's a, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing. But they also have these deeper uh, ways to explore that I think lead to, you know, growth and spiritual development and deeper personal development beyond just I'm fixing a problem. And the more we can introduce young people to those um, at a younger age, I think the more aware we'll, not just the less mental health issues, but the more awake and aware we'll be as a society, happier we'll be as a society, less polarized, less angry as a society, hopefully better caretakers of this planet um, as global citizens. And you know, getting a little bit kind of out there, but I, I really believe that if we if we can share this with younger people, um, all of this stuff at a younger age, we won't just do a lot toward the mental health crisis, but actually toward just the, the human crisis that we're in <laughs> the world. With. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I so appreciate your response with that because I think often what we are hearing is that the solution is this and one size fits all. Yeah. And it yeah. really isn't a solution that that touches all of the things that you mentioned. And also just this idea of teaching it early on, of teaching these skills and teaching these perspectives early on and how that can kind of transcend different stressors that come up throughout life and, and make this a scalable intervention. We've talked about different ways to, you know, address weight and address healthy eating and all of these types of things early on, this is mental health really should be one of these top priorities. Big time. Big time. Well, and I'm, I'm, I think it was in the book Healing by Thomas Insel, who used to run an IMH, and he talks about how you know, we we do focus to your point, Chris, too much on like number of clinicians to administer X number of hours of treatment and really the solution to the mental health problems that we face as a country and a world really are not about the number of patient sessions, the number of clinicians. That's something about 10 or 12% of the outcomes are actually due to the treatment you administer. The vast majority are what's happening in communities, what's happening to a person's Mm -hmm. underlying health, what's happening in terms of community violence and stress and poverty and lack, you know, really thinking holistically. He talks about these three Ps of, you know, purpose, place, and, you know, 
I forget the last, mm-hmm. but is basically looking at this much more kind of holistically to yeah. look at what actually accounts for these outcomes. And I just so love yeah. the idea of intervening and building healthier humans from the from the ground up. I can't tell you how many talks I give, Chris, that we're talking about these themes like gratitude and compassion and mindfulness mm-hmm. and awe. And people will come up afterwards and be like, I want to ho- go home and talk to my like kid about this. Or why aren't they teaching entire classes on this in schools as opposed to yeah. waiting till a person is sick or suffering wow. or struggling? Right. It's, it's right. a totally backwards right. way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I think, Chris, too, a lot of your work is so applicable to what's happening in schools and, and can mm-hmm. be used. So many of your books can be used for teachers, for parents and for kids. And so I, I think I really appreciate that about your approach and, and how you've connected with mindfulness and how you are moving towards teaching mindfulness, because it's ways that are digestible for people to actually understand and be able to practice these things. Yeah, certainly my hope. Yeah, yeah. Now, Chris, speaking of some of your books, you know, we, we find ourselves, am I allowed to say coming out of a pandemic? Are we officially have to knock on wood still? I, 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 I think okay, it'll be true. I'm going to say it. Let's go. We're going to speak it into existence. I think, I think it's official. Yeah. We are, we are, we are out. Uh, I mean, you heard it here first, people, on this podcast uh, as we recorded in June. It is over. Um, no, but, you know, as as people are emerging from this unprecedented time, right? And this opportunity for reinvention and regrowth and resiliency. And a lot of this ties in, of course, to to one of your recent books that I that I loved on um, how we grow through what we go through, which by the way, awesome title. <laughs> Although every, everyone I interviews through. me like, flubs it. So excellent job, by the way. <laughs> hey, everyone flubs my happily even after as well. They're like, happy even after. And I'm like, happily, happify even after. Uh, but anyways, you know, that book really speaks to sort of resilience in general and growth following sort of hardship, but specifically through this lens of self-compassion. And I'm wondering if for... Listeners, uh, if you want to share a little bit about that book in general and how you see sort of this idea of self-compassion and mindfulness feeding into each other and, and how we would go from there. Yeah. And, and, and in my own journey, you know, I have been practicing mindfulness for many years and then kind of um, got more curious about self-compassion. Chris Germer has been a wonderful mentor of mine and a neighbor of mine. And, um, you know, long before, you know, either of us had written a book and, uh, and so about 10 years into my mindfulness practice, sort of kind of working with, with, with him and doing a workshop that he was doing and suddenly like, wow, this is like accelerant for, uh, you know, what mindfulness can do in terms of um, just, you know, I, I think self-forgiveness, you know, around, you know, some stuff from the past, um, you know, learning how to cultivate a more compassionate inner voice as opposed to that you know, so many of us have that inner critic, right? And how do we learn how to not necessarily even get rid of that inner critic, but just turn the volume down a little bit on the inner critic and turn up the volume a little bit on the inner inner compassionate coach and just be kinder to ourselves. Because I, I know I, I, I have always beaten myself up a lot, but but it's really practicing self-compassion that I went from you know, calling myself all kinds of names in a harsh voice to like, just kind of like letting things roll off of me or letting the mistakes that didn't matter roll off of me. And the ones that did matter, you know, really being able to engage and work with those, but, but really moving me through a lot of the shame that I I felt, um, you know, from, from some challenges when I was younger and things like that. So I really, you know, that, that book came out of the pandemic when suddenly also it went from like, you know, it was like, canceling all these trips that I'm never going to work again. And then suddenly like all these online workshops and we talk about trauma, you talk about resilience and, um, and shifting, you know, and, and discovering, you know, a lot about resilience and discovering also that more people actually experience, you know, post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress. These were actually possible to happen at the same time. Um, where does self-compassion, self-regulation, mindfulness fit in and that then at first it was just a talk I was giving like at companies and at schools and and things like that and then that that became the book was that that first you know half an hour talk I slapped together that then became a a three or four hour workshop I was giving places and then 
wrote all that down and, and had the new book of uh, how we grow through what we go through, which I can barely say. <laughs> I can see uh, you thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awesome book um, for listeners. And, you know, I'm just going to repeat something you said, because I think that you threw it in there and I want to put a finer point on it. Listeners, more people experience post-traumatic growth than post-traumatic stress. And I think this is such a counterintuitive phenomenon that a lot of us, you know, even in the field, we don't always remember, let alone look at people through that lens, you know, which it's kind of a mind-blowing thing, but it's emblematic of, of the way we've operated, I think, as a field of mental health, of this fixation on the negative, on psychopathology, on suffering, all of which makes, certainly makes sense from a certain standpoint. But if we're not studying and learning about the people that are making meaning from life's hardest moments, who are emerging from that a better version of themselves, then we're doing both them and the world a disservice by not you know, soaking up all the knowledge that we can from those people and really looking at, is it something that they're doing differently that the rest of us might be able to do? But that is such, I think, an underrated piece to remember. And I'm, I'm always struck by, is it George Bonanno, who does a lot of work on post-traumatic growth, who says, you know, when you're talking to someone, don't even use the word traumatic right away. Talk about potentially traumatic experiences. Because once you're mm. assuming that a person responds to an event as yeah. being traumatized, you've actually lost half the battle that many people do not. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, anyways, I love, love, love your book on that. And are you working on anything else right now in terms of future books? I've got two going in very different directions. That's it. Um, Only two. I thought maybe. <laughs> That's where I got the twenty-two from. <laughs> I knew. I knew you were working on two. One actually, you know, we joke about the the book that I wrote with Daniel in in, in a half an hour, twenty-five minutes on the phone. Here's a book I wrote in fifteen minutes by text message, um, <laughs> which my friend wrote to me, and she said, "My daughter just farted," and she said, "Mom, feelings are like farts; they fade away." And we were both <laughs> we basically came up with 25 more fart jokes, you know, like, like feelings, you know, like they can be silent, but they're never deadly. If they ever hurt, you should probably talk <laughs> to an adult you trust, you know, they can happen in unexpected places, you know, like, I mean, list goes on and on. we write this up, send it out to publishers, we get you know, six publishers go to bidding war over it. You know, I'm a guy that spent like five years writing clinical manuals, you know, on the one hand for like 12 cents an hour. And then it's like, about parts, you know, with my friend Tara, you know, and how, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. The market. Um, (laughs) The market wants what it wants. Yeah. (laughs) The market wants wants what it wants. So, um, exactly. You know, uh, So that's, <laughs> and does that have a title for listeners to look at? For, uh, feelings uh, are like farts. It feelings are like farts. Well, which go. is farts are like feelings too. Um, you know. There you go. I mean, I feel strange saying this, but it really resonates with me. Even the, the few <laughs> examples that you gave—that's so true. Right? So you don't want them to hold them in for too long; they really end up exploding. You know. There you um, go. You know, Sometimes they can be silent but deadly. Airplane. Um, it's they can make you laugh with friends, but you know, um, yeah, they can it's, love it. I can't. I can't dispute any of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 it's um, so we actually just had the illustrator meeting this morning. Even though we actually wrote this book three years ago, it was the beginning of the pandemic. But uh, so we're super pumped about that. That'll probably be on my grave is not, you know, the, the <laughs> academic research I did. But it'll be like, you know, the guy that wrote the fart book um, <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, a book about mental health for college students, because that's uh, really uh, near, near and dear to my own heart. You know, 20 some years after I graduated or barely graduated from college. So, <laughs> and I'm, uh, and I noticed that you were working on that, Chris, and I think it's like. It's one of those topics, you know, sometimes you like hear about a book or learn about a topic or see a talk or a movie comes out. We're like, how has a documentary not been made on that? It seems like it would. Yeah. And it, I was actually, when when I saw you working on that, it struck me of like, there's really not much that's quite like that that's out there. There's really not, has not been much in the way of books, at least that I'm familiar with. There is so nothing. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I was doing the like, you know, comps for the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what you, book proposal. And I was like, how is there not a book on mental health in college? And so it's really exciting to be able to be yeah. the first one. I really want it for like 
you know, RAs to have it, you know, psych 101 professors to assign it, you know, parents, when they get that phone call, like mine did 25 years ago, you know, that this is the book that they get that can hopefully start them on a journey. And I actually would love, I'm interviewing many, many students, I'm interviewing clinicians, um, so if you're a student listening, hit me up. If you're, <laughs> hit me up, the two of you, I would love to interview um, about this topic. Um, so we, we can back channel on that. But um, yeah. Chris, my man, anything for you, you know that. Jonah might have more fun college stories than I do, but wouldn't be happy, <laughs> happy to. <laughs> um, okay, so Chris, for, for every episode, we like to ask the same last four questions. Okay. Um, it, and, and so we call this our lightning round. Uh-huh. So we'll make this not too painful for you. <laughs> so what's one change you'd encourage listeners to make based on your work and what we've talked about today? Practice one minute of mindfulness a day and see if your day doesn't go differently. Um, or do one thing mindfully. Just mindfully sip your coffee in the morning or um, mindfully take your shower and see if your day doesn't, doesn't change a little bit. Yeah. Love that. Love that. My gulping four cups down this morning does not count. Apparently. So yeah, but be- before eight a.m., right? <laughs> Isn't that your rule? <laughs> that's how I do it. <laughs> uh, Chris, next one, uh, which you actually already spoke to, but if something else comes to mind or it's one of the ones you already mentioned, feel free. But what is uh, one thing that you're working on right now as we speak uh, on a professional level that you're most excited about? Um, you know, the next thing after this, because I'm always doing something, is really wanting to write about communication and how. Like, what's the what's sort of the, the neuroscience of communication? Um, cause that hasn't really been done either. And I, I really, I feel like I'm always like studying what I need to learn or writing about what I need to learn. You know, it's like, gotta learn gratitude, you know, gotta learn, <laughs> gotta learn positive psychology, gotta learn resilience, gotta learn, positive. I don't know, I guess I gotta learn about parts, but, um, you know, uh, I really need to learn how to communicate better. Um, so, or I really want to, no, um, you're, you're doing okay, but, uh, but that, that's very right. And, and, <laughs> no kidding. And on some level, we're, we're all doing me search at the end of the day when it comes to all these topics. So, you know, yeah, it's a company. Agreed. I just haven't, you know, published 20 books with the me search that I've done, <laughs> but we're oh, all doing no. research. Let's get on it. Let's get Let's do this. Super, yeah. I, I, need, I need to talk to my four-year-old about any ideas that he has. <laughs> That's where the best ones come from, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm hearing it. Um, okay. So what's one thing on a personal level that you're looking forward to right now? That I'm looking forward to... Um, my new plan is to try to take uh, my summers completely off. So mm-hmm. I'm taking four weeks this summer. I took six or seven last summer. And next summer, I want to take like a full eight um, is my my intention. So we'll see if I can pull that off and just be with my family, travel with my family, and uh, truly, truly unplug. Yeah. Good for that you. sounds lovely. What are you, a professor or something? Uh, <laughs> my, my, my brother and sister-in-law are both academics, and the, the, the whole like, calendar in the summer is a source of envy for me. Uh, so I'm not jealous or anything, Chris. Uh, last but not least, being that this is the happy hour, um, where is my margarita? Uh, but <laughs> how do you, on a personal level, like, what are some of your go-tos when it comes to cultivating happiness and well-being in your own life? What are, what are some of your keys there? Exercise is important to me. Time outside is really, really important to me. Just being outside. Actually, I just saw something about this, that if you spend an hour and a half outside every day, you're happier. I <laughs> BS on Facebook or something, but like I got on that article because that's really important to me is outside time, family time, and uh, and and travel any any combination of those I can manage. So outdoors, traveling with my family, <laughs> um, and our gratitude. I think you know we do actually as a family we do roses and thorns at the end of every day where we talk about four roses for the sort of four to one you know negativity bias ratio mm. of things that went well. Of course, my kids are like, let's do a hundred roses. I don't want to go to sleep. I'm like, let's do <laughs> um, a thorn of something that didn't go great, and then a bud of something we're looking forward to, and that's been. That started in the pandemic. We've been able to Love keep it. it up, which is it's a beautiful tradition. Pandemic. I know. And I'll just point this out for listeners. I mean, I think there's there are of course times right where things are more complicated. Right, we would be the first to admit that. If you know, some people you know need more than this. But I think if you know, if everybody, if you just imagine a world where we spent more time with people we care about 
and we spent a little bit more time in the here and now with mindful awareness, if we focused on the good instead of just the bad, if we moved our body in those ways that you talked about and we spent more time outside, those five things, imagine what that would do to our health, to our mental well-being, to our sense of you know place in the world. So really, you know, I think sometimes we as psychologists, you know, the three of us are guilty of this. We make things almost more complicated and we shy away from some of these basic <laughs> foundational things of like, if we spend time moving your body outside with people you care about, doing things that matter, you're going to be doing better uh, at the end of the day. So anyways, appreciate that answer, Chris. Yeah. I appreciate being here and I appreciate the work you two are doing and super is wonderful to meet you. And I look forward to staying connected with the two of you and, and hitting you up for uh, research on my book. So yeah. We would love that. And and thank you for being here with us today. I feel like I learned so much and this was mm-hmm. such a such a great conversation. So Chris, if our listeners want to learn more about mm-hmm. you and find you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, drchristopherwillard.com or at Dr. Chris Willard on I guess everything but TikTok because I'm too old. Um but we <laughs> are Chris Willard. Um I'm on like Instagram and I don't know if I'm going to stay on Twitter or not, but, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, I guess. We'll see what comes next. Um, but that's where you can find me if you want my social media stuff. We'll uh, put those in the show notes as well. On the website. There's some there's some fiction writer also named Christopher Willard. So sometimes people get us confused, but I'm the Dr. <laughs> Christopher Willard on my website. So. Yeah. And I feel like there was an actor in maybe the first Scream who had a similar name to yours, but uh, maybe, I, maybe I have to, have to, have to check, check that out. So make sure it's the doctor. Yeah. That's who we're looking for. That's right. Um, yeah. The name is escaping me and I don't want to go on a tangent, but but yes. Uh, Thanks for stopping. <laughs> I, will, I will hold myself back. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for oh, being Ma- here. Ma- Matthew Lillard. Not even Christopher. Well, I was way off. Way off. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you. Uh, you can't help yourself. Killer, you know. Of course not. <laughs> this what is a Chris, random fact. This is Chris Willard. Not a go, not 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 a murderer in a in a, in a, in a screen movie. This is the famous and speaker. Not a Canadian writer. novelist either, who's like <laughs> emails me every year. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much awesome. Chris you're the best appreciate you taking the time today oh, thank, you, thank you all